This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, September 28th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Hillary Nelson dies in avalanche on Mount Manaslu. County Talks Trail Project and Lewis Mine Upkeep. Telluride Science Toasts to the Future. And a Mountain Weather Forecast. But first, Norwood lost a member of its community this week. John Blumenheim passed away at his Norwood home after a battle with prostate cancer. He was 67 years old. The San Miguel County Coroner's Office notes Blumenheim was where he wanted to be and surrounded by those he loved at the end. Touch of care hospice attended to his comfort. Crippen Funeral Home will attend to services. Blumenheim is survived by his children, Sean and Shauna, his 16 grandchildren, his three great-grandchildren, and his wife, Cheryl. Telluride local and world-renowned ski mountaineer Hillary Nelson died in an avalanche after summiting Mount Manaslu, the eighth tallest mountain in the world, on September 26th. Her body was recovered from the mountain on Wednesday. She was 49 years old. Nelson was on an expedition with her partner, Jim Morrison. In a post on social media on Wednesday, Morrison says they, quote, reached the true summit of Manaslu in tough conditions on Monday morning. He notes they quickly transitioned from climbing to skiing with the intent to ski around the corner and regroup with their Sherpa team. Morrison writes as she skied, Nelson triggered a small avalanche, was swept off her feet and carried down a slope about 5,000 feet. Morrison says rescuers spent two days searching for Nelson by helicopter. On Wednesday, they were able to land at 22,000 feet and locate her body. Several years ago, Hillary Nelson gave a presentation at the Sheridan Opera House about the importance of daring greatly. KOTO News spoke with her at the time about getting out of your comfort zone and finding ways to feel small in the world. Today, in her honor, we're rebroadcasting that interview. The name of your presentation is Dare Greatly. Yes. What does that mean? For me, it just means we we have such a affinity to towards comfort. And with comfort, there are amazing things, but we neglect sometimes to to take risks and to dare and to step out of our comfort zone. And so I've taken it to kind of an extreme level. But what I hope the takeaway is, is just for everyone in, in what they do to realize that all these comforts we've made for ourselves sometimes are a detriment and we should step outside of that and dare, take dares, um, take take a couple risks and think a little bit differently about who we are and how we live. You've been to places that most of us will never go to. <laughs> yes, and, perhaps. And that's why I, like, I love telling those stories so that people can feel a little bit a part of some of these really wild places. Yeah. So when you're on these expeditions and you're in these in these places that are so remote and wild, what does that feel like to be standing there in that spot? Wow. I mean, one particular moment comes to mind and it was uh, in 2018 and we are on our summit day for climbing this 8,000 meter peak Lotse and it, we'd been in the dark. We started at two in the morning and it was dark and it was so cold and you're at, you know, 26,000 feet. And then 
we had a sunrise and there were five of us in the whole of the the Everest, Lhotse, Nupse Valley. And that sunrise, I mean, I, I can't even explain it. It gives me the, the chills right now. You know, I, I turned around and like it was like instant tears in my eyes and I was just laying back on the snow. And I just remember thinking that like this is why I do this, this, this moment that like is so personal and I feel so small in this huge landscape and so insignificant but in a in a powerful way in uh, addition to going on these expeditions you're also a really big supporter and advocate for keeping wild places wild is there anything that you feel like for people just living their day-to-day lives who care but maybe can't do grand gestures to support right. these places are there things that you feel like we can do on our in our day-to-day lives to to support support those places? Well, I mean, again, this is something I take to an extreme. Like I go to some pretty crazy, really remote places. But really what it means to me at the end end of the day is that I have somewhere to go when things get tough. And life is tough for all of us and in so many different ways. And so that's that's really my takeaway is that whether you live in New York City or Shanghai or Telluride, Colorado, these places are all very different, but hopefully there is some short walk that you have that gives you that space to not be on your phone, to think a little bit. And I think when you connect with even the smallest quiet trail or space or park, it gives you it gives you a little sanity, a little bit of that feeling of being a small thing in a big landscape. And hopefully that makes your problems feel smaller than they do when you're all wrapped up in them. So uh, that's not totally, I'm like wandering from your question, but I think, you know, if you have that connection to a space, then you are going to care about it. And I think the point is that if you can care about that space, then hopefully you can transport yourself and care about some of these other spaces that maybe you'll never see, but you can understand their importance. Hillary, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. A mother of two, Nelson's career as a mountaineer spanned decades. She was the first person to complete a ski descent of Lhotse, the first woman to link Everest and Lhotse in a 24-hour push. She completed a double summit of Denali and was the first person to ski descent Papsura Peak. She was named National Geographic Adventure of the Year and a North Face athlete. KOTO News will broadcast a tribute to Nelson's life on Thursday's newscast. Hikers wanting a break from the steep inclines and relentless switchbacks that define many an area hike might someday have another option down valley. San Miguel County is pursuing a feasibility study on a new connector trail to run along the San Miguel River. Janet Kask, the director of Parks and Open Space for the county, says the new trail would connect a county park in Placerville with an existing four-mile river trail. This is a proposed 3.4-mile trail uh, that would uh, start at the county's Down Valley Park and connect with the county's M59 River Trail, which is just beyond the Saw Pit community. Cask says the county is keeping accessibility in mind as it moves forward. And even though we're all familiar with the uh, challenging topography Down Valley, we are going to pursue ADA access where applicable and uh, you know where that can happen. 
Speaking before the Board of County Commissioners, Cask reports that the project is still looking at what is possible with the terrain of the area. The project could include multiple footbridges. The contractor, OTAC, will soon begin land surveys. And it's a feasibility study, and the purpose of this is to you know, see if this trail can actually be built and then uh, pursue grant dollars down the road uh, to see it come through to fruition. Currently, San Miguel Parks is focusing on outreach to area homeowners. The next public meetings for the project will be held on October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. The county plans to discuss public right-of-ways and increase pedestrian traffic with area residents, says Cask. You know, the whole purpose of this project is to pursue CDOT right-of-way and publicly owned land as much as possible. So yes, BLM is part of the conversation. There are a couple of homes that uh, come into play in segment four and five. We are in touch with those homeowners. Uh, We might have to obtain trail easements from them, but those conversations are uh, just getting underway. A map of the proposed route, as well as information about upcoming meetings and an email sign-up for project updates, are all available on the San Miguel County website. Also at the meeting, CAST asked the commissioners to approve $60,000 of funding for upkeep at the Lewis Mill, a historic structure and hiking destination in the Bridal Veil Basin. CAST says the project will involve two phases of construction, the first of which will be pursued before the coming winter. Um, We're trying to um, close up where windows were blown out uh, with plexiglass, um, close up some openings that exist in the structure, and sort of button it up for the winter months um, just to protect it from the um, outside elements. If we can get to phase two, great. Uh, Phase two is more interior work, but that might have to carry over into the spring. County commissioners voted unanimously to approve the funding. Prepare to be blinded by all the fun science can conjure. This week, the Telluride Science and Innovation Center will be hosting its first ever community celebration at the Depot building. We're doing it at the Depot because we are starting renovations on this historic building um, on October 10th. So it's really kind of serve as the last hurrah for the depot in its current state. So we're really celebrating its past. That's Annie Carlson, Director of Donor Relations for Telluride Science. It's held such an incredible place in Telluride's history, and we are going to be toasting its future as the Telluride Science and Innovation Center. The Telluride Science and Innovation Center purchased the depot building in 2020, but delayed moving in so the Telluride Regional Medical Center could use the space as a respiratory clinic during the pandemic. Founded in 1984, Telluride Science, formerly known as the Telluride Science Research Center, brings thousands of world-renowned scientists to Telluride to study and share their work. We bring in scientists from all over the world to collaborate in Telluride in this really unique, intimate environment that's very inspiring. And they're working on a variety of research that addresses our current uh, societal and planetary challenges, anything from climate change to developing cures for diseases to new materials to artificial intelligence. It really runs the gamut. Historically focused in the summer months, when the Science Center can utilize Telluride school district buildings, Carlson says having a home of their own will allow them to expand their programming. And so 
Telluride Science is shifting the depot space into a forever home. The building is historic, so the outside of the building really is not going to change that much. But the inside is going to be completely transformed. The upstairs are going to have two very large classrooms. Um, The gallery room, which is off to the right when you walk in, will be um, kind of a flex space, but also a classroom space. Carlson notes downstairs is where the big changes will happen. There will be one large classroom created downstairs, and there'll be a commercial kitchen um, put in. Of course, in true Telluride fashion, Telluride Science wants to be versatile with its space. Carlson says the newly renovated building will offer the community a new event space. In the depot's history, it's traditionally been a a gathering space starting in 1891 when it was built as a train depot and the um, town's first telegraph office was in there. So we're really excited to bring this traditional tradition back just as a place for people to gather. And we really encourage the community to use it for, you know, a wedding, an event, a rehearsal dinner, to host meetings, to host a retreat. Um, we just want the community to get as much out, much use out of it as possible. And we're really excited to be able to offer it as an asset to the community once again. The Telluride Science Community Celebration Toast to the Future event will take place on Friday, September 30th from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. at the depot. There will be food, drink, and music from the Hush Pups. The event is free and open to the community. The Telluride Institute's Talking Gourds Poetry Series continues next week with poet Tracy A. Lightsey headlining the group's October event. Lightsey grew up in Montrose, where he now teaches English, writes poetry, and practices massage therapy. His work has been published in literary journals across the West. After Lightsey shares some of his recent work, the evening will turn to a question-and-answer session, followed by an open opportunity for all participants to share a reading or to spin a tale. The virtual event takes place on the first Tuesday of every month. That will be this coming Tuesday, October 4th, at 7 p.m. To register, visit telluridelibrary.org. How about this for a breath of fresh air? According to an analysis by the Lung Institute, Colorado has the nation's second-best lung health. In a state-by-state ranking of resident lung health, Colorado comes in only behind Virginia. The analysis is based on county health data and considered rates of cigarette smoking and state air quality readings. About two and a half years after the first COVID-19 cases were reported in Colorado, responses to the pandemic have varied across the state, both the public health response and community reactions. Aspen Public Radio's Carolyn Giannis teamed up with Aspen Journalism to look at how COVID-19 tested public health departments and the communities they serve on the Western Slope. Most people can remember just how their lives changed when COVID-19 reached their corner of the world. Yeah, I still have a sticky note on my computer. It just simply has the date and positive tests. It was March 9th, the first positive test we had in Gunnison County, and it changed my world. It changed the whole world. That was Gunnison County Public Health Director Joni Reynolds. 
Gunnison County is a mountain community like Pitkin and Eagle Counties that recorded one of the first COVID-19 cases in Colorado. Those first cases came from both domestic and international travelers visiting super popular mountain resort communities in the area, like Aspen, Vail, and Crested Butte. Despite these towns being destinations for both international and domestic travel, in the weeks leading up to March 2020, not all local officials were convinced that the virus would cause a problem if it arrived in the U.S., until those first cases were detected. I do remember that Board of Health meeting. I think I presented a little bit on, oh, this is this, you know, illness that's overseas and it'll never come here. And, you know, that was going based on, okay, what was our previous experiences with Ebola? You know, we all were braced for that. What did that amount to? And so I think we had that mentality. That was Dr. Kim Levin, the medical officer for the Pitkin County Board of Health. She was proven wrong in March 2020 when the first COVID cases reported in Pitkin County were detected in a group of visitors from Australia. When it arrived, um, I, I was honestly, I was absolutely terrified. A lot of fear, um, a lot of unknown and um, a lot of uh, terror. At the time, Governor Jared Polis took matters into his own hands and signed an executive order on March 14th, shutting down ski resorts across the state. Given the extreme risk to the high country, over the weekend, we ordered the closure of downhill ski areas for a week. Again, likely renewable, but we'll look at data. And we strongly advise that all visitors and residents of Eagle Summit, Pitkin, and Gunnison counties and those who have visited there in the last week or two minimize social contact. That's really important. We have limited healthcare capacity in the high country, and we also want to avoid disbursement both within the high country and for those who have returned to the metropolitan areas. There were specific challenges facing these high-altitude tourism-focused counties. The altitude in and of itself was a problem. Dr. Levin explains how COVID-19, a virus that primarily impacts the respiratory system, was particularly challenging for visitors not used to higher altitudes. There are so many people coming from sea level or lower elevations with complex medical issues and with a history of lung and heart disease and diseases that put people at higher risk to progress to more moderate and severe COVID. There was a sudden increase in demand for home oxygen use. This led to patients getting transferred to hospitals along the Front Range, where elevations were lower and resources were greater. In the summer of 2020, Polis signed a third executive order, Protect Our Neighbors, that tailored restrictions to each county. This was largely based on a few key metrics, case rates, percent positivity testing, and hospitalizations. It allowed each county to adopt stricter measures than state guidance if they wanted to. From September 2020 to April 2021, the state health department's COVID dial indicated the status of each county based on those metrics and the restrictions they had to put in place. But starting mid-April 2021, the mandatory restrictions ended, and the dial became merely advisory. Since then, local governments have had the final say on most public health restrictions. Heath Harmon is the Eagle County Public Health Director. He says the differences between counties could be seen clearly after that spring. 
when the state response really then puts a lot of that control back to the local officials, it's when you really saw a dramatic shift in terms of what one county was doing compared to another county. In the Roaring Fork Valley, which is made up of three counties, those differences were immediately apparent. In Basalt, a town that lies partially in Eagle County and partially in Pitkin County, masking ordinances varied at some point from one side of town to the other. Here's Pitkin County Public Health Director Jordana Sabella explaining how the state's metrics weren't adapted to the uniqueness of resort communities like Pitkin County. We have 18,000 residents, but on any given day, we can have three or four times that number of residents in the county, whether that's people from surrounding counties who commute into work here or folks who have come from as visitors. That brought some unique challenges to be able to understand how this virus spreads, how we can measure it, what we need to plan for communication challenges. If you're coming in to the county and you don't live here, you might not be reading the paper or know about our website. So how are we getting the message out to those folks? She says collaboration with local partners up and down the Roaring Fork Valley and Pitkin's neighboring counties of Eagle and Garfield was key during the pandemic. This transient community created another obstacle to overcome for public health and hospital systems in Western Slope counties, often rural in nature, were catering to populations that expand and contract seasonally, health systems weren't always equipped to handle COVID cases when they came in waves. Garfield County Public Health Director Josh Williams recalls that this led to major stress on local health departments and healthcare systems as they dealt with the impacts of COVID with often limited or fast-changing information. The volume information. Probably the one of the biggest stressors, you know, that was coming in constantly throughout the day as well as into the evenings and early mornings. You know, 3,000 plus emails, thousands of calls that were coming in and out of our operations center. We also had staff whose family was impacted by COVID. We live in these communities too, right? And so our friends were affected and we lost friends and loved ones. I think that making it even more stressful when there's maybe uh public angst about the situation. Staffing issues were already a problem for rural health departments, often located in areas where housing was both scarce and expensive. We're having a hard time recruiting. I think cost of living is difficult, especially with nursing. Definitely have a hard time filling some of those because of the competitive wages with that licensing. And that wasn't the only major stressor local public health departments faced. Pushback towards public health measures from masks to social distancing was a constant across the Western Slope. Nearly every public health department we spoke to said they had trouble finding solutions that made everyone happy. Here's just some of the negative responses from folks in communities across the Western Slope. Now keep in mind, this is an emotional topic for a lot of the speakers. And there's just no science behind this mask. Yes. <laughs> Pardon my French, but... It needs to end. And so I'm here to tell you, because of the pending threat of going back to masks and your upcoming injection mandates, I pulled them out of your school. When you go out in, in our community, do you see the majority of people are not wearing masks? It's because people know their own health. They are sick of this. They're sick of being lied to. They're sick of not being able to trust public officials. The most important thing is to get the masks off the kids, get them back to normal. 
um, they're low risk and the, you know, kind of the human experiment we are doing of keeping the masks, I think, um, has potentially lifelong consequences. Well, sorry, but I don't need to feel a little safer making children be tortured wearing a mask so I can maybe feel a little safer. I don't think that's healthy and I think it's oppressive. This is killing our children. Right now, I spend six hours of my week driving my son down valley so he doesn't need to wear a mask. Masks clearly are not effective. Here we are, two years later. I am begging you not to do this. I know that it's useless and that our words fall on deaf ears is what it feels like. Now, we should note here that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends masks to the general public as a way of preventing the spread of COVID-19 and has found that consistent usage of masks is associated with lower odds of a positive COVID test result. Although many of these people felt that public health officials weren't listening to their complaints and concerns, those officials tried hard to listen to everyone. Here's Allison Howe, a communication manager with Mesa County's Public Health Department. It was hard for, especially a rural community, we're cowboys out here in Mesa County. I was just so heartened to see these staff members continue to give the services, and even though they knew that there's a lot of ugly being thrown at them for the work they were doing. This ugly rhetoric was also something that nurse practitioner Pat Sullivan observed in her community of Delta County. So what I've learned is not everybody understands what public health is, right? And not everybody cares about everybody. This puts strain on people's relationships within their communities. Heath Harmon from Eagle County says he felt that pressure. When you're implementing a public health order or a public health decision, and you have community members that are in disagreement with that decision, a lot of times they're our neighbors, right? You know, a lot of different conversations that would play out um, because the community is relatively small and so many, we, we, we know one another. Looking back at these past two years, a lot has changed regarding what we know about the virus, the variants, testing, the vaccines, and also treatment options. Some of the public health policies put in place didn't always make sense or felt wrong to some people in these communities. But in those early days, Joni Reynolds from Gunnison County and others felt they were doing the best they could with the information they had. And I can't change the decisions I made in March of 2020 based on what I know today, nor should anybody be judged based on decisions they make based on the information they have at that time later with there's new experience and new knowledge. Caroline Yanez, Aspen Public Radio News. Lorene LaSalle from Aspen Journalism also reported on this story. The music in the story comes from Blue Dot Sessions. This is the first in a two-part series looking at the impacts of COVID-19 on public health departments across the Western Slope. And the next part, we'll look at how responses changed once vaccines became available. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a chance of showers and a low around 45. Thursday should be partly sunny with a chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon and a high in the low 60s. Thursday night should be partly cloudy with a low around 40 degrees. Friday calls for partly sunny skies with an increasing chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day and a high of 60 degrees. Friday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 40. This has been the news for Wednesday, September 28th. Thanks for listening. 
If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Attention parents with young children. Do you want to help your child learn skills like problem solving, how to make a friend, and how to identify emotions? Join Bright Futures, Wilkinson Public Library, and Telluride R1 School District for our annual parenting workshop on the Pyramid Model. This free community event will take place on Wednesday, October 12th at 5.30 p.m. at the library. Dinner, childcare, and Spanish translation will be provided. Please email madeline at brightfuturesforchildren.org with any questions. See you on October 12th. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.